0: We are about listening to the podcast of a seminar presentation by Professor Pat Utomi at the Ikoi Baptist Church Golden Jubilee Celebration. Title, The Role of the Church in Rebuilding a Great Nation. Listen and be blessed. Chairman, very distinguished ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's a kind of challenging task to be asked to speak after two men who are about to recreate the transfiguration. When people are are already planning to set up tents, and then you ask me to come and speak, that is cruel and unkind punishment. But I'm used to taking punishment, so I don't mind. Um, Really, truly, it's a great honor, it's a privilege Uh, to be asked to join you uh, as you celebrate. So let me congratulate every member of the church and the pastor for 50 years of outstanding presence. The subject of a symposium is also a very challenging one. As the chairman pointed out, it's about remaking, not making, but remaking a great nation and the place of the church in that. Um, one of the things that uh, the church is supposed to do is to be an institution of socialization, into which new members are socialized into a certain value frame, a certain culture. And we will find that culture is very critical in nation building and therefore the role that the church plays is a truly a significant one. Somewhere during the course of the remarks that I shall make, I will talk about a framework that I use to analyze economic growth, national performance. And one of the Sets of variables in that framework is culture, because values shape human progress, and values are very, very critical to development. And the church is so important in shaping values. I'm glad that Elder Felix Ohiere talked about the motto of his school, Uh, since I had the privilege. Of uh, reading his biography many years ago, I have used to uh, 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 levels of uh, uh, making people noxious that motto in my comments uh, around the place, and I think it's a very very uh, important thing for us to bear in mind. Even this morning, I referred to it in a speech I was giving somewhere in a do state uh, this morning. Um, you know. When wealth is lost, I like to emphasize that nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. And the trouble with Nigeria is that we have suffered a collapse of culture and character has been lost. And so to remake a nation is really about... Rebuilding character, and I'll just give one or two or three examples to remind us of why we can say perhaps there was a nation, perhaps there was character, and perhaps there is need to remake. Um, amongst the examples that I, I like to use when I talk about that uh, is, and I'll get to my presentation in one minute so. Uh, if we uh, get to it. Um, you know, back in the uh, 50s, the regions used to compete with one another on who will bring progress, more progress to the people. Indeed, um, two professors at Michigan State University in the 70s wrote a book on modernization in Nigeria. and They were uh, Robert Melson and uh, Howard Wolpe, and in their book they try to challenge what they called ethnocentric views of Africa in which people talked about tribalism and they try to describe what happens in Nigeria as not tribalism but as competing ethnic nationalities each trying to bring the most progress to its people and they call that concept competitive communalism. And my favorite illustrations of the phenomenon of competitive communalism include this. Television. Premier of Western Region, Chief Obafemi Aolo, tries to communicate something on the Nigerian Broadcasting Service. He's given the dodge and he decides to set up his own corporation. But since technology is advancing, he jumps to the new technology called Television. that's why the first television station in all of Africa was in Ibadan. And it was called WNTV. Indeed, there was television in Ibadan before there was television in Brussels or Dublin. That is the kind of thing that came out of competitive communalism. And as somebody who lived in Ibadan in the 60s, I went to Loyola College. um, When WNTV comes on, it's WNTV. First in Africa and and you know Eastern region was very quick to follow and since Ibadan was first in Africa Eastern Nigeria had to have his own and it was second to none (laughs) that was competitive communalism I give another example from industrialization again, Chief Obafemi Awolowo, Western Region, the first to think of industrial parks, industrial estates, to attract investment in, in industry. And so they take a part of Western Region. Most of us drive through it these days. We call it Ikeja, and demarcated the Ikeja Industrial Estate and invited investment. And that's why if you drive down Obakran. Most of those companies have Udua Investments. And he invited these invest- investors to invest in those places. And those investors said, to be sure, it won't be nationalized. You take an interest in our ventures. And that's how Udua Investments got to have investments in those companies. As soon as he moved, the Premier of Eastern Region replied with two, Abba and Port Harcourt. And the Premier of Northern Region responded with Kakuri in Kaduna. That was competitive communalism. And those who are talking about restructuring are not foolish. They know what they are talking about because it happened and the country was great as a result of it. Um, Let's take education, even education. You know, many things have gone well in our country that we take for granted. At the time of of independence, the federal government of Nigeria under Prime Minister Tafawa Balewa set up a commission on higher education led by an Oxford educator called Eric Ashby, the Ashby Commission on Higher Education. And Sir Eric Ashby said in 1961 that the quality of higher education in Nigeria was as good as the very best in the world and that indeed it was easier to get into Harvard in 1961 than to get to the University of Ibadan. This is an educator from Oxford, Sir Eric Ashby. Eastern region wanted to have a university that it could boast was as good or better. And so Dr. Namdiazikwe started the University of Nigeria which I'm a very proud alumnus of. And Ibadon tried to look down at the University of Nigeria but we had to show you a few things. So in the very first civil service entrance examination, the first 10 came from the University of Nigeria. Ibadon came next. So you see. (laughs) that is competitive communalism but you know our country has since suffered significant setback we're talking about setting up uh, civil services I think it was Dr. Kolaria, was it the chairman who said that we said yes uh, 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 um, uganda botswana all of the chief judges in many of these countries came from nigeria indeed nigeria helped set up the central bank of botswana interestingly between 1968 and 1980 botswana was the fastest growing economy in the world fueled by diamond exports and they managed to avoid a phenomenon That has crippled the nigerian economy which is often referred to as dutch disease a few years ago the nigerian economic summit group shamelessly invited the governor of the central bank of botswana to come and teach us how they manage dutch disease even though we set them up now that's part of the example of this loss of a sense of shame in nigeria And this is all part of character, part of culture, part of values. To just give a simple example of how culture matters and how values make a difference. Most of you will remember that just about a year or two ago, there was a boat mishap in South Korea. School children were going on excursion, and the boat went under and many died. As a matter of personal shame, the vice principal who ordered the excursion committed suicide. The minister of transport resigned. The owner of the shipping line took off or whatever. The, The president, I mean the ultimate humiliation in Korean culture is to give a full bow. The president, short of resigning, had to give the ultimate apology. This is character. This is what is missing in Nigeria. And I have a reason why I think that has happened to Nigeria. It's a very controversial reason, but in my view, in my analysis, in everything, it's a tragedy of the culture of the class of 1966. I have a thesis that in 1966, a group of young soldiers took Nigeria over and have held Nigeria in state capture till today. Nothing has changed. They have held Nigeria. Forget Shagari, forget uh, uh, Jonathan. This small group from the class of 66 have held Nigeria hostage for 51 years. And the fundamental culture of the class of 66 is a hunter mindset. Say, you know what a hunter does? He shoots down game, chases everybody away, and he and his friends chop bush meat. And the person who captured it in popular parlance, the best, is Chief Afolabi, who said of Chief, Bolaige, look at you, this one that we invited to come and eat. You are talking. Because for them, government is something you capture to come and eat. I'm writing a book, titled 50 Years, in which I will talk about the culture of the class of 66 and the crippling of the dream of the founding fathers of Nigeria. And we can analyze and analyze Analyze, But that's not the subject of my uh, uh, discussion tonight. The point is that culture matters and the loss of a sense of shame has led us to a point where those who are primarily responsible for the humbling of Nigeria have a great sense of swag. There is swagger in disgrace. That is the tragedy of the Nigerian condition. But let me speak to this let's go on to the next uh, slide i i was just making point that this morning in Edo, i was speaking to this uh, uh subject and that you know it seems so uh, interesting that the challenge of nation building uh faces us and we have to deal with it from a number of perspectives um, first of all what are the critical issues in this challenge of nation building Amongst them is the nature of the modern state. Modern state as we know it today flows from a series of agreements and conventions and ways of behavior from Europe. After 1648, the peace of Westphalia, after the Hundred Years' War and Europe started to have peace, from there began to emerge new kinds of nation states in which people did not want to interfere in the and internal affairs of other nations, and the states that we today fight are sovereign and sacrosanct, uh, began to emerge. Incidentally, the peace of Westphalia and the um, outcomes of that have begun to be unwound, beginning in a very fundamental way with the fundamental human rights declaration of the United Nations, and so that the world has come to a new thinking, and that thinking is that human beings have the right to self-determination because that is what enhances their humanity. And in the age of self-determination, the ultimate measure for how you keep a country together is service to the people. If you are unable to service the the people with justice and they feel comfortable with the direction that collectively we are all traveling in, then they have a right to say, we don't want to be part of this thing. That's self-determination, and they can opt out. That is the new sense of the new modern state. And so the pressure is on leaders, on politicians, to serve the people in a way that everybody has a sense of belonging. American President Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 60s made a very popular, a phrase. He said, it is better for everybody to be inside the house, pissing out, than for some people to be outside the house pissing in. Because the house people are pissing into will smell, and you don't want to stay there. Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohammed took that mantra, took it and made it his mantra. And he took a country in which in 1969 during our civil war, people were slitting throats of each other on the streets of Kuala Lumpur into one of the most progressive, one of the most developing countries emerging nations uh, in the world. So it begins with that notion. And that critical variable that matters in nation building comes from the idea of the first new nation. There's an American called Seymour Martin Lipset, who has written a remarkable book titled The First New Nation, in which the United States of America is actually conceptualized as the very first new nation of the modern world. And one of the most important concepts in the idea of a new nation is the concept of legitimacy. And legitimacy is earned. Legitimacy is not given. You might have institutional arrangements like elections that confer legitimacy to a regime, but that regime has to consistently earn the trust of the people and therefore to remain legitimate. The challenge of legitimacy and post-colonial, the post-colonial state in Africa have been challenges that uh, we have struggled to live with. I think that the huge um, issue that we have to deal with is that one of the major institutional arrangements for ensuring that that legitimacy continues to flow is the role of political parties in democratic systems. Unfortunately for us, our political parties have failed us very badly. In fact, I would dare to argue that even though I belong to a political party, there really isn't a real political party in Nigeria. The role of political parties is to attract younger elements, socialize them into certain beliefs, values, and vision. Dr. Kola, take note. Vision, even though... What we have are dreams, not visions. (laughs) Visions and the way society should be ordered. Nigerian political parties have been a disaster in terms of that. And so we don't have political parties in Nigeria. And it's made our democracy very, very difficult to organize. And so one of the things that we need to organize are political parties, because we don't have them. Um, In 1911, a guy called Roberto Michels wrote a book titled Political Parties. And in that, he offered a thesis that is very often talked about the iron law of oligarchy. So, he who says organization says oligarchy. Essentially, political parties are dominated by oligarchs that hold the value frame of that party together. Um, unfortunately for us, what we dominate is power, not purpose. The big challenge of performance in Nigeria is that there tends to be a supplanting of power over purpose with challenges for performance. And that is what we need to deal with. So where has growth gone? Why is the economy stumbling? Where are the challenges? Well, you know, in the very beginning, Nigeria was known as the great potential. Uh, Anybody who's managed to have a conversation with... uh, uh Laji Maitama Sule, that Masanin Kano, was a fascinating man. Uh, since he lost his sight, I think he talks a lot more. He always talked, but he talks even more now. But you you couldn't you couldn't sit with Maitama Sule for 15 minutes and he won't remind you of those early days. And they really were glorious days. He will remind you of how he walks into into parliament and he doesn't go across the aisle to go and dobale to greet Chifaholo. And the Prime Minister will pull his, uh, you know, the leader of your position, pull his ear to go back and go and pay his respects to his elder. And, and then he will talk about how back in those days, the world was looking at some emerging powers as colonialism came to an end. And the great emerging powers they are looking at from Latin America is Brazil, from Asia, India, and from Africa. Nigeria we know where Brazil is we know where India is going where the hell is Nigeria this is a question that Maitama Thomas asks and he romanticizes it in a very interesting way Uh, so the country of great potential went through a phase that came to be known as afro-pessimism a sense of worry in the world that Africa is just bad news How did we get here? The books that were written about these times include people like William Easterly writing about the elusive quest for growth, the challenge of economic growth in our part of the world. They include the big argument between two men that I have strangely found friendships with. One who is coming back tomorrow, BJ, BJ. Paul we'll Collier comes back tomorrow to give the Lagos lecture. Um, a remarkable fellow, because when he came here for the CVL annual lecture in February, uh, on my birthday, his bag was stolen at Muson. <laughs> but, but, you know, we put everything into recovering that bag, and I physically took it back to London for him, <laughs> to take back to the UK. We got it back. We got it back one month after. We got his passports. We got his... Um, credit cards with cell phone we got all of them back but his laptop the guy has sold it and the person he sold it to had sold it (laughs) but we managed because the governor of Lagos state was present and he was he took it very personally and the guy who stole it was so bold he stole several others at high-profile events within two or three weeks and then he came to an event the vice president but when we were flagging off the, the rail project from Lagos to Ibadan or something, and the Lagos State Governor's contingent, because we had put out his photograph, we identified him. Well, is that not that guy? Is that not the guy? So we were looking at him. And when he got up, they went and said, "My friend, who are you?" "Say, I'm a director of Total." "Okay, let's see your ID card." <laughs> so he's, he's being tried right now. Anyway, but I I have this interesting and peculiar friendship with these two men who dominated discussion in economics about why growth was slow in our part of the world. And one of them is called Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs is the author of the book, The End of Poverty. Um, And the other is the gentleman I just mentioned, Paul Collier. Now, generally, the uh, perspectives on why growth was slow, why things were not going as they should be going in Africa at the age of aproposimism, as they were canvassed, uh, Jeffrey Sachs essentially suggested that the problem of Africa was geography. In effect, Africa was destined to be poor. Yeah, I like to say that for effect. That's not how he meant it. But essentially, he argues that because of mosquitoes and malaria, Africans were always too weak to produce. And so the problem of development in Africa was malaria. Now, before you laugh too much, that was why the first policy of General Obasanjo in 1999, was was called Rule Back Malaria. He was essentially responding to Jeffrey Sachs' counsel. Paul Collier, on the other hand, argued that all that was hogwash. Africa was not growing because African leaders were making the wrong policy choices. I agreed with Paul Collier in the main, but ironically, I had been invited to work with um, a team that Jeffrey Sachs was leading, putting together the first Africa competitiveness report, which was presented at the World Economic Forum in Durban in 2000. And during the presentation of that um, report, the president of Mozambique raised his hand and said, You people have come again. You have come again to confuse us in Africa. He said, You see, you said to us, Do this and we we'll do it. What you say will happen does not happen. You said to us, Look, you need to tighten your belts. If you tighten your belts, investors will come in. So we said, eh. We began to tighten our belts. We so tightened our belts, when you look at our body, you won't see anybody. All you see is belts. And we didn't see the investors. Huh? So we went to World Bank, said, look, oh, we've tightened our belts, no investors. The World Bank said, you see, you need to be patient. He said, eh, patient. So we went back home. In fact, some of us changed our middle name to Patience. And we were so efficient, but there was no investor. I said, oh, bank, what's happening? You see, people need to see track records. you track records? So we're setting down tracks, and we're breaking records. But no investors were coming. <laughs> it was very humorous. And we all, everybody laughed. But I somehow did not find it funny. I went up to my room, very depressed. And the question was, is the trouble not that we are uh, Many very unicursal in our analysis of the problems of growth and development. Maybe we're focusing on one cause, policy, like Collier would say, or destiny, like uh, Sachs would say. And I began to sketch a framework of interdependent variables that somehow add together to create the challenge that we face. And I call this the growth drivers framework. It had policy choices, which were very important, it had institutions, because what we find many times is that when institutions are weak, right policies can take you forward and weak institutions lead to a pushback. As you recall, Barack Obama, in his first uh, trip to Africa, uh, made the point that growth was slow in Africa uh, 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 because Africa relied mainly on strong men instead of strong institutions. Well, I've got to work through just quickly through this uh, framework. But the bottom line I think there is to make is that we do have a few challenges. One of the big challenges we have is the youth challenge. We have a huge youth bulge. It can be an advantage. It can be a curse. If we invest appropriately in our young people, education, and well-being, it will do For us, what it is doing for China, but if we don't make those investments, we will return to Kaplan's vision of West Africa and the coming anarchy. The question is, what are we doing? If we are going to remake our country, one of the central things that we have to look at is how to manage our youth bulge and essentially turn it into a demographic dividend. If we don't, this place will be warlords in a few short years cutting off streets Uh, a number of things i wanted to critical to all of this is a sense of what leadership really means and developing people to be leaders and part of the reason that i spend most of my time working with young people today in a center that i founded called the center for values in leadership is that if you look at this framework that i was offering institutions policy choices human capital Entrepreneurship. Central to all of this is your value system. Because if your values are going the wrong way, you won't be able to get the other ones going together. I give a simple example. Here in Lagos, one of our favorite prayers is what? Isheke kiri. It's a complete negation of the work ethic. If you don't have a work ethic, how are you going to make progress? And you compare this. To places like Malaysia, when young people are going home and all they're discussing is who worked harder than the other today. So our value system is fundamental and to build leadership thinking in that new generation that recognizes that on their own, working hard with God's grace, they can pull everybody up by their straps if they have the right values. Leadership is what shapes culture. Culture holds together all these other things, but who gives the direction of change of culture? It's leaders. And I give a very simple closing example. Um, Babatunde Raji Fashola, minister responsible for works, makes a simple statement which is really so true. Lagos-Ibado Expressway, when it was built, fantastic. We used to do toll gate to toll gate, Lagos-Ibado, 40 minutes. Those who built the road said that those junction points should be replaced every five years. In 40 years, nobody had replaced it. To build, to be a leader, is not to build a road because anybody, any moron can sign a check for G. Luzberger to build a road. A leader is he who teaches his people to know that some things need to be done to the roads. So I thank you.